Hey guys, Agent Scott here. Make sure you stick around to the end of the show to find out about our exciting James Bond giveaway. Cam, roll the episode. Rolling like a Rolls Royce. Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I mean, this is where you would insert the sort of drum roll and the fanfare and the trumpets, because we have one heck of a guest. Yes, we do. He has entered our web of sin. (laughs) (laughs) We uh, we have none other than, I'd say, the king of Bond on YouTube, Calvin Dyson. Oh, that's a very kind introduction. Thank you very much, <laughs> and and thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this and to talk about uh, to talk about this film. Of course, it's uh, yeah, it's quite an honor. So thank you for having me on. Oh no, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a big thing for me. I mean, I've been watching your YouTube videos for for years. I uh, the genesis of this podcast came from me sort of revisiting all of the Bond films, I bought the box set and started going through them. And, and as an accompaniment to my rewatching, I would check out the, the YouTube reviews that you had of them. Oh, cool. Oh. So you are you are actually part of this podcast in, in some strange, strange way. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that that's getting into real, like, you know, a butterfly can flap its wings in, in, in Japan and cause an earthquake in uh, California. That's, uh, yeah, butterfly effect of Bond, I guess, maybe. Well, I didn't say it was necessarily a good thing, because you've caused this podcast to happen now. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe I blame you, yeah. Well, I did equate it to an earthquake, so. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were Bond, but you're actually Blofeld. no i'm kidding of course i'm actually quite a fan so this is um yeah this is lovely thank you that's very sweet of you um well i I suppose for those who don't know you um tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and the work that you do in the bond world yes well um i have been keeping a youtube channel for like over 10 years now which is crazy if you can think back to a time where youtube was this sort of relatively new thing where everyone had bad sound and bad cameras and uh it it was all very haphazardly done um but i just sort of started doing it in my spare time at university because i was a film student and i loved james bond and no one around me loved james bond as much as i did so i just kind of needed this soapbox almost most to stand on and sort of spout out my opinions about James Bond and that took video form at at, at the time Uh, and then I've just sort of kept it going all these years it's a bit of a hobby pastime for me and you get to have some great conversations about uh, Bond as well Um, and, and then since then sort of branched out into being on a few different podcasts and regular on the James Bond and Friends podcast and uh, the Diminishing Returns podcast, which is more general movies, but we have a string of Bond uh, reviews going through there as well. Um, and yeah, it's been a bit of a lifesaver this last year with pandemic and all that. It's uh, it's not quite nice and meditative, really, to uh, just escape into the world of Bond. Well, I'm curious, how has your relationship with the franchise sort of changed over the years of doing this deep dive analysis? And are there any movies that have 
you know, maybe early on weren't necessarily favorites, but once you've come to really appreciate just analyzing them. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's like most Bond fans, I guess, and you'll probably be the same if you're asked to like rank them. It will be different on any different day. Like a week can go by and your ranking will be different. But there are some like I've certainly come around on the Timothy Dalton ones quite a lot. Uh, I think License to Kill I used to be very uh, crass about, <laughs> and uh, and now I, now I think it's really good. It's uh, it's sort of slowly, uh, yeah, uh, climbing up the rankings. Um, and then there are some that are perhaps the Connerys sort of slide down a little bit. Um, but then it can also depend on, talking about Bond so much, there are some Bond films that are often talked about very highly and they get all the acclaim and the fan attention and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes you just want to be supportive of the underdog. You want to you know, throw a bone to The World Is Not Enough or Moonraker or Octopussy or one of those kinds. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think the ranking does change quite a bit. Um, but it's crazy to think that there's only been like two new Bond films since since I started my YouTube channel because it was like when I start this YouTube channel, I'm gonna have so many things to talk about every couple of years, maybe every three years, and no, no, two films in ten years. <laughs> That's a very depressing way to start this podcast. Thank you, Kelvin. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, aside from the YouTube Bond side of things. A question I have for you, Calvin, is what's your favorite spy film that isn't a Bond film? Ooh, that is a very good question. It it would probably be a Hitchcock. Um, mm -hmm. I th I'm probably The Lady Vanishes. Actually, if that mm. counts as a spy film, there are spies in it. I don't think of it as a spy film, even though it technically is, but. It's not on the same level as like the Thirty Nine Steps or North by Northwest, Notorious, Torn Curtain, but uh, Lady Vanishes is I think I love those thirties Hitchcock films anyway, um, Sabotage, Young and Innocent, and I think the Lady Vanishes is such a, a fun sort of warm hug of a film. It's something that I can always stick on if I'm feeling a little bit miserable, and it'll just cheer me up because it's just such a fun romp. Um, but I'm a massive Hitchcock geek, so uh, yeah, it'd be one of those. That's a terrific pick. Yeah, oh yeah. You a fan? Yeah, I am. Lady Vanishes is really fantastic. It's one that is on our list to cover at some point in the future, for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's so underrated as well. I remember they were doing, oh, this is a really sad story, but sorry, I'm starting this podcast off with a couple of sad <laughs> observations, but uh, it did, uh, they had a screening of it at a cinema local to me in Leeds when I was there as a student, and I was very excited about going to see it, and I dragged my friend along who wasn't terribly interested in seeing it. We were the only two people in the cinema watching it mm. on the big screen. It was like, oh, why can't more people see this? So yeah, I'm a big champion for that one, Lady Vanishes. If if we can get away with covering Men in Black International, mm. I think we can get away with covering The Lady Vanishes. Now I haven't <laughs> actually seen it, to be fair. Oh no way! Oh no, I I need to. I'm a I'm a yeah I'm a bit of a cinema uh, newbie when it comes to some of the bigger directors. Mm. I you know I watching North by Northwest for this podcast, which was our second episode, was my first time ever seeing it. Mm, yeah, and that's North by Northwest. So we're digging in further into the Alfred Hitchcock uh, back catalogue as we go along. So we may have to get you back for a, for a Hitchcock down the line. I would love that. Yes, please. <laughs> right, I've noted that down. <laughs> right then, Cam. I suppose now we've introduced our guest. The next thing is to introduce the film. Yes, I think it can all be summed up in one word: Goldfinger. 
We are tackling the 1964 Sean Connery, James Bond film, Goldfinger, the one that really broke through and made Bond a household name in the uh, 60s and onwards. Um, Well, I had seen this film for the first time when I did my rewatch a few years back. But I think before we get into that, let's get into the letterbox.com synopsis. Goldfinger. Everything he touches turns into excitement. Special Agent 007 comes face to face with one of the most notorious villains of all time. And now he must outwit and outgun the powerful tycoon to prevent him from cashing in on a devious scheme to raid Fort Knox and obliterate the world's economy. I mean, if you remove the Fort Knox mention, that describes almost every single James Bond film. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, I, I actually I think that was quite a nice little intro there. But as I said, I, I only saw this film, I think, from watching uh, the, the rewatch a couple of years ago for myself. But gents, before we get into the main review, do you have any memories about this film? Obviously, uh, you've seen it before, I assume. <laughs> no, no, I'm new to it, actually. This is my first time. No, no, no. Yes, mm, I've seen mm. it dozens and dozens of times. But it is one of those where I have no first memory of watching it. I have very specific memories of my first, like, three Bond films. And then after that, it's all kind of, oh, I just must have borrowed the DVDs from a cousin or uh, the videos from a cousin and sort of watched them all in about the course of two weeks. So I have no sort of first time impression of it. Um so yeah, it, it's it's hard to remember anything like that. Do you have any uh, sort of first time memories of it? I do, in that I was a you know a kid who grew up watching Roger Moore movies, and so like that set the template in my mind at that age of what a James Bond movie is. And so the first Connery I had watched was From Russia with Love, and I had finished that movie and been like that was not like the James Bond movies I know and love. I don't know what that was. <laughs> So it took me a little while to cycle back around. And Goldfinger was the first one I watched of the Conneries after that initial experience. And um, yeah, we rented it. And I remember watching it and really enjoying it. So I did end up watching at least a few of the Conneries at a young age. And largely thanks to Goldfinger was the one that got me back on board after, you know, obviously I've come around on From Russia With Love, but, you know, like 12-year-old Cam or 11-year-old Cam didn't think it was uh, the bee's knees. Uh, Goldfinger, though, very much was. I can see that. I mean, it's it's maybe slightly closer to the Roger Moores than the first two. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, my only impression was uh, watching them sequentially, really. And I thought Doctor No was great. From Russia with Love improved on that slightly for me. And then I felt Goldfinger was almost on par with From Russia with Love. Like it didn't really do anything to add to it. But it's weird because this film has this sort of legacy of being the best one at that time. Well, it's the one that established the template, right? Like every Bond film that would go forward would very much look back on Goldfinger as to how to create the perfect James Bond film just following the pattern. Mm, I, mm. I think that's certainly the case, particularly when it comes to... I think this is the first one where they start they, they sort of really latch on to the elements, like when people do that checklist of Bond films where it's, you know, gadgets, cars, Bond women... Um, you, you know, a henchman, a main villain. It, it does tick all of those boxes really well, actually. I'm sure we'll get into talking about them in more detail. But just 
as an overview of the checklist of Bond, I think that's a big reason why this one is so well remembered. I'm not sure if those ingredients necessarily come together around a story that's particularly strong, but certainly each one of those specific modules is is really excelling here. Okay. Well, before we get into what we feel about it now in, in 2021, Cam, can you whisper some golden words in our ears? <laughs> uh, yeah. So the behind <laughs> the scenes on this one basically started during the shooting of From Russia With Love. They... They still wanted to make Thunderball, but that was mired in legal battles with Kevin McCrory. So they decided to do Goldfinger. And so they assigned Richard Maybaum, who'd written Dr. No One from Russia with Love, to begin writing Goldfinger. And that book was very much eyed as the best one to follow up on because it was very America-centric, and they wanted to capture that American audience. So Maybaum delivered his first draft, and then they brought in Berkeley Mather, who did, um, who worked on Dr. No to do an uncredited rewrite of the film. Um, now, they were looking to have Terrence Young come back and do his third in a row, but Terrence Young couldn't reach a financial agreement with the producers, so he bailed. And uh, it did The Amorous Adventures of Maul Flanders instead, which, if you want to hear more about Maul Flanders, you can jump over to Scott's other podcast where he talks about every Maul Flanders adaptation. Correct, Scott? Yeah, it's called Molehards. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so they brought in Guy Hamilton. Guy Hamilton had directed about 10 films. Nothing that was like super notable, but um, was, you know, an established guy who could deliver a product on time, on budget and do good work. He had done a movie called The Winston Affair with Robert Mitchum, which has some espionage elements. He was actually initially asked to do Dr. No back in 62, and turned it down or wasn't able to actually do it. So what could have been if Guy Hamilton had started from day one? Well, that's for a, another world. We talked about the butterfly effect earlier. You know, that's uh, <laughs> one of those great questions. So Guy Hamilton jumps on and begins a close collaboration with writer Paul Den um, on crafting a new screenplay for this movie. They're going to take everything that Maybaum's done and Mather's done and try to find something closer in tone to what they want to do. Now, uh, Paul Den was an Oscar winner for the 1950 film Seven Days to Noon. He'd also worked on the espionage film 1958's Orders to Kill with Eddie Albert. So he was a really established writer, obviously, but not a Bond guy. And he really didn't work on the franchise at all afterwards. He would go on to do The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. He would contribute to all of the Planet of the Apes sequels. So interesting career, but uh, kind of an outsider. And maybe that kind of ties into why this movie does take a little bit of a um, jolt in a different direction, possibly. Okay, I can definitely see that. And, and this film does have a, I think, a sharp turn from, from Russia With Love. Yeah. So some of the things they looked at in adapting this was um, a lot of the lines were punched up. Like a lot of the classic lines that uh, are delivered throughout this film very much came from this collaboration with Hamilton and Dan. Um also, the idea of the pre-credit sequence, that was a flashback in the novel, the South America sequence, and they decided to actually put it right up front. And initially, Bond was going to be wearing a dead dog on his head instead of a bird hat, which I thought was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a what if we can get to later. All right. They also had to grapple with uh, the ending of the novel where everything leads up to a Fort Knox heist and then they get arrested. So there's no Fort Knox heist. <laughs> so that wasn't really going to work. So they had to hammer out a new ending. So what happened was these two came up with their final version of the movie or the script. 
And then they passed it on. And Richard Maybaum was very concerned about it. He didn't like how they were kind of losing the more serious tone. He thought there was too much comedy and gadgets. And they took the script to Sean Connery on the set of Hitchcock's Marnie. And he was very concerned as well. He uh, had issues in particular with like odd job crushing the golf ball. He was like, that's ridiculous. And <laughs> thought they were kind of losing the danger of the Bond stories they'd you know, done in the previous two films. So what happened was Maybaum and Den sat down and hammered out a final draft. That is what they ended up shooting. So it kind of is merging the two identities of what Bond was before and where Hamilton wanted to take the franchise. Um, when it came to casting, some of the choices were pretty easy. Like Honor Blackman was Guy Hamilton's idea. He'd loved her on the Avengers and thought, bring her on over. Goldfinger was the one they struggled more with. Charles Gray, who'd go on to play Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever, tested for the role. They um, also looked at Tito Vandis and Harry Saltzman really wanted Theodore Bickle, who was in My Fair Lady. Um, he tested as well. And the basically outcome to that test was this man is no Goldfinger. <laughs> So <laughs> they brought in Gert Frobe, who was known in Germany. He'd appeared in The Longest Day, and he would wind up being dubbed by the actor Michael Collins in the film, but they really liked him. And so after a fairly lengthy process of trying to find their Goldfinger, they had him. Um, also, a couple other notables here. Peter Lamont was hired on as a draftsman to work under Ken Adam on this film. Peter Lamont would go on to become a production designer for the franchise on almost every single film for your eyes only onwards. So this was a pretty major hire in the world of James Bond. Also, the addition of the Q branch sequence and boosting up the character of Q. Desmond Llewellyn came on and was told by Guy Hamilton, you do not like this man. He ruins your gadgets. Why would you ever give this man respect? And that, I think, essential contribution from... Um, Guy Hamilton forges a relationship that carries through several decades and is still continuing to this day. It's actually really funny to think this is where this this relationship started, actually. Yeah, because in the last film, it was just sort of instructing him. Yeah, we talked about it when we did From Russia With Love, where he's there, but he doesn't feel quite like Q. He's just kind of giving the exposition. He's not kind of, uh, you know, getting bristled by Bond at all. And the same goes for the Boothroyd character in uh, Doctor No as well. It wasn't played by Desmond Llewellyn then. It was uh, Peter Burton, I think, is the guy's name. But yeah, it, it was just a character that came in and delivered this exposition and then went off. Whereas this contributed something to, like, they do this whole, like, you know, with Q as sort of the annoyed teacher and Bond, the uh, sort of petulant student. They do this throughout the, the course of the series, really. And up until, like, I would say until the Timothy Dalton era, where Q becomes a little bit more of sort of like a wacky uncle kind of uh, kind of character, a bit of a eccentric inventor. But here he's very much stuffy and he doesn't like Bond's playboy antics and fiddling with the gadgets and all that. And it's it's perfect. And they bring it back, really, that dynamic, just age reversal with the Daniel Craig films as well. Mm, yes. So uh, this movie had a budget of $3 million, which was uh, more than the previous two Bond films combined. But domestically, it did $23 million, international $23 million, for a worldwide total of $46 million. And that's just on initial release. As it continued through re-releases, it got up to $125 million. So that is a pretty great return on investment. <laughs> I think they call that a hit. <laughs> yeah, the budget was recouped in two weeks, and it at the time was in the Guinness Book of World Records for fastest grossing movie of all time. So, wow. <laughs> uh, 
that's why Goldfinger gets all these spotlights on it. It's the one that made Bond really happen. And probably the reason we can all thank, you know, this movie is because that the franchise, well, it's still going. And it's largely because of that Goldfinger effect. Mm. I suppose my question is, is that not based on what they saw before? So they saw a really good filming from Russia with Love. So the cinema audience came back for the next showing. Or would you think it's more to do with word of mouth, people that have seen Goldfinger and are telling their friends? It's probably a combination of the two, right? Like I would imagine there is that building word of mouth, but it's kind of like when they dropped this one, it became the must-see movie event. So I'm sure a lot of people were running out to it. Like think of Skyfall, right? Like people loved Casino Royale. They didn't really like Quantum so much, but those two movies were big hits. But then Skyfall earns a billion. It's by, you know, advertising the fact it's a 50th anniversary, making an event everyone feels they have to go see. I just think Goldfinger was that in 1964. Mm. It does feel like it's the perfect storm of, like, okay, this character is now established within cinema goers' minds and it's got the good word of mouth and all that. And I mean, on that trajectory, like the next film, Thunderball, made even more money than Goldfinger did. Um, so I, I think that carried on that upward slant um, into the next one as well. And there was the whole like 60s spy craze around this time, like the Avengers was on TV, The Saint. Um, I'm not sure if the American shows had um, started yet, like Man from Uncle and um, Get Smart and all that kind of stuff. But it was, uh, yeah, it was, spy fever was a, a real thing in the in the 60s. Yeah, and I mean, Get Smart was actually 1965. So it was basically oh, right. like the creators uh, saw this movie and were like, boom, we have our next TV show because, uh. yeah, it does feel like it's often riffing off the ideas that would have been introduced in this movie. Mm. Mm. And so it landed at number three for the box office in 1964. Uh, number one was Mary Poppins. Number two was My Fair Lady. So that's a pretty solid three. Uh, no mm. real obscurities there. I, I actually thought you'd say it come in number one, but then you said Mary Poppins, and I suppose that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things just on the list. Uh, Marnie came out this year. It did fairly well. It was a little bit of an underperformer for Hitchcock, but that's notable because Sean Connery's the star of that film. Also, way down the list, way, way down the list. I don't even think it got released in North America, but I'll note it anyway. Carry On Spying, a film that <laughs> means more to, I think, Scott and maybe Calvin than it does to me. <laughs> hey, hey, don't lump that on me. We will cover it someday, but I'm not saying it means a lot to me. <laughs> It means almost as much as Maul Flanders. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is true. Uh, so just lastly, the only other thing I have to note, this is the first Bond film to win an Oscar. It won the Oscar for Best Sound Effects Editing. So maybe not the most exciting first Oscar win, but notable nonetheless. Well, I think it's all just part of that um, steady climb that the, the film series is making at this point. Mm-hmm, totally. Right, well, we've uh, we, we've set the table, and now let's tuck into the meal. Goldfinger. Um, Calvin, you're our guest. You've revisited it for the podcast. What do you think of it now? Oh, yes. it's. Uh, I always come back to Goldfinger, and every time I rewatch it, I sit down and I'm always like, oh, it's it's always the it's the overrated one. It, it's the one that's got a lot of problems with it. Uh, and yet I always get so swept up in it. I, I have a really good time every time I watch Goldfinger. I think it's, uh, I, I mean, I touched on the elements earlier on, but uh, it does just have an incredibly strong villain, incredibly strong henchman, uh, car, all that stuff is just 
absolutely phenomenal. It, it's uh, a really pretty looking film without being necessarily a cinemascope travel log kind of thing. I think some of the shots where the Aston is going through um, Switzerland and the like is really beautiful. But uh, location wise, it's perhaps not one of the stronger Bond films. But nonetheless, it, 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 it's got a real um, nice look to it. Um, I think it, for for a story where Bond is incarcerated for half of it and it goes off on this <laughs> 10 minute tangent so that we can crush a car, it's quite remarkable that it ends up being as fantastic as it is. Um, but it's it, I, I find it impossible not to love this one. It's always ranked quite highly for me. It's probably my favorite Connery Bond. And I think that the Connery Bond performance in this is just a perfect textbook Bond. He's doing like he, you know, he can sell the emotion when he needs to do that. Like when he's with M at the start and he's reacting to um, Jill Masterton being dead. Um, but then he can sort of effortlessly glide through in, in this sort of panther uh, panther like way through the action sequences um but he really sells you on the intensity when you need it like when he's got the laser beam um going up in between his legs so it is just a perfect perfect bond performance uh, and i think that outweighs the fact that bond isn't actually very good in this film i think he's a terrible spy <laughs> through most of it and he contributes very little towards the uh, the foiling of goldfinger's scheme in the end um so yeah, that, I mean, that probably says a lot that he's so fantastic in this, even though he might not have been written as uh, as well as he has been in other films around this time. Those keeping track, that's the second time that Sean Connery has been compared to an animal. <laughs> he, is, he is a panther this time, so he's had an upgrade from, I think, duck-billed platypus, which we had him as last time. <laughs> that's still better than dead dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. It, I, I won't get into my bit yet. I'm going to throw it to Cam. But it's really fascinating what you pointed out, Cowan, and I noticed this too in my rewatch, is he isn't really very good in this film. He keeps getting caught and thrown in jail or he's just standing around. Everyone else is sort of moving the plot around him, mm. uh, which I thought was really fascinating for a, which, what might be one of the most successful Bond films of all time when you adjust for inflation. It's kind of nuts, isn't it? They don't even let him defuse the bomb at the end. Like some nameless character has to come in and move him out of the way just to flick a switch. And it's, I think it's a good gag, but it's at the expense of giving your hero character a hero moment. And I guess he kills odd job. That's very smart of him. But uh, even taking down Goldfinger, it kind of happens by accident. Goldfinger shoots the window and then goes flying out. But uh yeah, it's strange. When that dude hit the switch on the bomb, initially I was like, is that Felix Leiter and why is he wearing glasses? And then it's like, <laughs> oh no, no, a man who looks exactly like this man who hit the switch, who is Felix Leiter, just walked up and said, good job or whatever. It's like, <laughs> why would they cast two actors that look practically the same? <laughs> was he the guy that was with Felix the whole film? No, no. No, he's not, is he? Who was that guy? No, maybe he's like a nuclear specialist or something like that they had on hand. Yeah. Sure. You would have to have a bomb deactivating <laughs> expert there if you were dealing with a nuclear bomb. So I guess that's who that guy was. Maybe there was a scene where they like introduced him with great fanfare and then they cut it. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> um, he probably should have worn a name tag or something. I don't know. Yeah, but maybe. Cam, what did you think? Yeah, so... 
it's one that I've seen so many times, like probably the most of any Connery movie. Um, maybe Thunderball vies for that title, but I'm pretty sure Goldfinger may have the edge there. Um, so I went in with kind of those same thoughts, like, okay, this is the one that sets the template. Um, this is the one where Bond is incarcerated, as Calvin said, for much <laughs> of the movie. Okay, like, you know, and I, we've reviewed Dr. No One from Russia with Love, which I thought were both really fantastic. And I really wanted to track Bond's progress as a character from those movies where he feels so dangerous and mercenary into this film. And I almost had kind of the chip on my shoulder of like, okay, I'm going to be the guy with the hot take on Goldfinger here. Um, no, I think it holds up really well as an adventure spy film it's really fascinating to watch because i think it's just so economical and i just kept admiring how efficient it was as a storytelling uh, you know product like it just kept hitting you with setups payoffs setups payoffs throughout the movie all of the elements just flow one to the other it feels so effortless and i i'm kind of surprised how because i think like when I say it's really economical, that's not something that Guy Hamilton really brings to his other Bond movies. A lot of those have <laughs> weird diversions or you've got, you know, J.W. Pepper running around screaming. Goldfinger feels so focused. And it reminded me a lot watching it last night of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is another movie that the hero is almost irrelevant to the story. <laughs> Indiana Jones could not show up at all. He could literally sit in a chair in his office for the entire movie of Raiders and the Nazis, they would probably find the Ark, kill themselves, end of story, um, much like the finished product. But in this case, it's kind of the same thing where you're having this hero who is often just kind of observing what the villain's doing and kind of following along. But just through set pieces, energy, um, a lot of the quips that really boost this movie up, it just feels like it's just on rails, like it just flies through. And I really enjoyed watching it last night. I too was hoping to come with this as, as sort of a hot take. Um, you know, thinking that, oh my God, Dr. No was great. Oh my God, From Russia With Love was great. Surely this isn't the masterpiece that people seem to think it is. But yeah, it, my enjoyment of it actually went up. Now my appreciation went up from when I first watched it. I think I had that sort of binging blues almost when I was watching them in a row in the beginning. Mm. And and you just see what, it, it's taken all the bits that it's done well so far added a few extra bits like the DB5 and, and fleshing out Q and just made this, this, this like, it's like exactly what every Bond film should be trying to emulate in some way, shape or form from Bond himself to everyone around him. I mean, I do have some issues with uh, Bond just sort of being a casual passenger throughout the film, but by God, does it, do I still care about what's going on? Right. Uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to fault that part, you know? Hmm. Hmm. But yeah, I just think it, what was quite refreshing as well, if you think from uh, from Russia with Love and Doctor No, we remarked in those episodes that Bond always felt like he was kind of a step ahead of everyone. Yeah. Mm. He loses that a little bit in this film. Mm. But for the better, I'd say. You think for the better? Okay. Yeah, it's something that I think fans still continue to grapple with, which is that Bond does feel like, as Calvin said, maybe not the best spy in this movie, where... He's so often just kind of following along Goldfinger's journey. But I guess the reason it works for me is so much of the moments, you know, where he is verbally sparring with Goldfinger. Like, I feel like that gives this movie a life that really does. Maybe it makes Bond seem even better 
just because of those scenes. Like you take those scenes out and suddenly Bond seems kind of inept. But you have the scene like the golfing um, sequence where they're just like golfing for like five minutes. And I made a note, never again will we get a golf sequence. And that makes me sad. Uh, <laughs> I miss the days where, you know, a villain could just go golfing for 10 minutes or, you know, stop at a fruit stand for like a minute. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we were so close to getting one in Die Another Day as well. Like the villain in his ice palace residence was going to have this like snow golf course thing. I, but then they just didn't do it. I, I really wish they did. I'd love another golf scene in Bond. I love that scene. It's It's, it's really great. Well, it's all a game of like one-upsmanship and just Bond psychologically messing with the villain. I think it's this relationship between these two characters, your hero and your villain, that makes the film really work. Mm. And I think it helps that uh, Cam, you said energy earlier on, and I completely agree with that. I think the film has a great consistent energy throughout the throughout the, its entirety. And I think that every one of the main performers is like tonally consistent. Like, I, I feel like Guy Hamilton, for all of his uh, possible faults, has a really good grasp of the tone of what he wants his Bond films to be. And that is a slightly more comedic tone. But I think it works better than some of the Terence Young ones, for instance, where when I hear Terence Young on some like audio commentaries and interviews and stuff, I'm not sure if he realized he was doing funny things when they were shooting it. And then he has to sort of <laughs> retroactively say, oh, yes, of course, we intended that to be a joke. It's like, well, I'm not quite sure you did. Whereas I think Hamilton really has a good handle on that. And I think um, the main actors do as well. Um, Connery, Blackman and Frobe, I think they're all sort of on the same page together. So just a dialogue scene between two of the characters can be really fun and they're sparring back and forth and it's um, it's never dull. It's really, yeah, spot on in that regards. Well, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask Cam, seeing as we we're talking about the golf scene. Yeah. You are our resident golf expert, unless Calvin, you also play golf. Uh, no, no. Okay, now I know Cam likes to go and uh, take a few links when he can. Yeah. Uh, this this is pre-pandemic, I think. Right. But um, do golf balls make a difference? Uh, t- well, I mean, this in this case, it's just, um, you know, Bond swapping out two different types of golf balls. Um, sure. Just to show up, Goldfinger is, you know, cheating. But um, when you're actually playing to maybe a great player, yeah, they might. Um, you might have your set manufacturer you'd want to use. To me, swinging away wildly, um, no, it doesn't really matter at all. I've never found a golf ball affected my game. Um, I wish they would. I wish they would affect it for the better. <laughs> You're more of a happy Gilmore than a James Bond. Often cases, yes. Uh, I, I'm more of a hobbyist golfer than a uh, serious, you know, reading the Zen of golf type golfer. <laughs> I'm really glad you asked that, actually, Scott, because it never occurred to me. But yeah, at the start of a golf game, do they, like, look at every player's golf ball and say, ah, yes, Slazenger won, and then they check it at the end of the game to make sure that it's the right one and there wasn't some duping along the way? But that's not a thing. It's more like you want the identifier because often cases you'll hit a ball into the rough or something and then you'll find, like, three or four other balls. You want to be able to know which one's yours and also separate you from your other, you know, people you're playing with. But... Look, I'm sure if you ask like Arnold Palmer or something, and I'm just pulling out random golfers' names there, um, <laughs> he would give you a beat-by-beat beat breakdown of the importance of the golf ball and the brand manufacturer, but I am not that person. <laughs> uh, okay. Huh. 
Well, I, I, we've put that golf-related question to bed, finally, after, <laughs> uh, what is that, 60 years of wondering about it? I'm glad we finally answered it. <laughs> um, well, I, okay, it sounds like we've all enjoyed the film. So I suppose I want to talk about some of the bits we enjoyed, some of the set pieces, character moments. So anything stand out to, to you, Calvin, you want to shout out? Oh, um, well, just on that golf um, game, uh, I do love that. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film, actually. And it is, it, it, it's one of those, it's always nice when you have Bond and the villain interacting in a civil sort of setting where they can't just kill each other or they're not at the point yet where they're even trying to. And I think it's pretty perfect in that regard. I love the moment where uh, Bond drops the gold bar and well, just as Goldfinger's taking his putt, and as he puts the ball, because the gold is so heavy, he misses the hole. And it, I love that moment so much. It's so expertly done. Um, and it's a fun sequence as well. It's nice seeing Bond kind of using his wits. I like the caddy guy that he's got with him, Hawker, who, uh, again, just a, a nice little character actor who I guess turned up for a couple of days' work. But that just sequence, and it kind of culminates with odd job crushing the ball in his hand. I think that is just so, so lovely. Um, uh, is it too early to talk about the laser sequence? Because that's like the the one of the more standout scenes from this and often parodied. Um, but it is like the quintessential Bond torture sequence. It goes one better than what's in the Fleming book. Like Goldfinger is not one of my favorite Fleming stories. Um, and I think the screenwriters here do a really good job of improving on some of the stuff that's in that. Um, one being that in the book, Bond gets out of the situation by just offering to work for Goldfinger. And in the film where he's incarcerated for much of the ending, in the book, he's just working for Goldfinger. He's doing his admin, which is not actually as exciting. Um, so I'm glad that they made those changes here. Uh, he's just, and it's not a laser, it's a, a circular saw that's um, going up and he's just like, hey, I can work for you, you know? He's like, ah, yes, Mr. Bond, that's a great idea. Here, do my paperwork. And then Goldfinger is curious why his scheme fails later on. And it's like, well, you kept the hero around to do your paperwork. Um, I messed up your taxes. I, I moved the <laughs> decimal place and now you're being arrested for tax evasion. Eat that gold finger. That would probably be a much smarter way of them taking him down, actually, instead of trying to prove this damn plot he's got to uh, radiate the gold in Fort Knox. And of course, the film improves on the, um, the novel as well by actually going inside Fort Knox and um, having the climax of the film take place in there. Um, well, that's that's an interesting, actually point to make because i've not read the book i've only read about two bond books in my life i know mm. shock horror i'm not sure if you have cam but calvin you've obviously read it mm. is the film an improvement on the book overall oh 100 yes uh yeah i i don't even think i'm i'm terribly hot takey with that i don't think goldfinger is considered to be one of fleming's best where there are some like moonraker for instance where the book is as soft a spot as I have for the film, um, the book is really terrific. Uh, but this is one where they really did take the uh, the structure of the book and the characters and then expanded it out and made it so much, so much better. Um, yeah, it's a real improvement. Yeah, I read the book when I was a teenager. It's been so many years um, that my memories of it were very vague. But I do remember when I read it, my takeaway was, well, Goldfinger's considered by most especially back in like the 1990s like the ultimate james bond movie this didn't feel like the ultimate james bond book because i'd read before that i think live and let die and diamonds are forever and i think i'd enjoyed those two more mm. 
Yeah, no, I know it, it was it was um it follows um Doctor No and from Russia with Love, which are a couple of my favourite of the Flemings, and I think you do get to a point where Fleming starts to kind of run out of steam. Um his next book after that one in the chronology was I can't remember if it was the short story compilation or if it was uh, Thunderball, but Thunderball obviously was based on a screenplay that he was sort of co-writing with Kevin McClory and some other people for a different project, and the short stories was a collection of various ones that he'd written for different publications. So he was definitely sort of running out of steam a little bit at this point, and he gets rejuvenated a bit towards the end of his run. But uh, yeah, it's also one of the longer ones, so it's uh, yeah ends up being a bit of a slog. I'm curious, you know, your memory of the book is probably better than mine. Um, was the kind of the back and forth between Bond and Goldfinger played up as strongly in the book as it was here? Um, I think it was. Uh, the, I remember there's a whole passage in the book where Bond is investigating, I think it is Goldfinger's home, and he finds out that Goldfinger's got like some cameras and then Goldfinger uh, returns from wherever he's gone and Bond has to sort of get rid of this camera film and they're sort of sparring and there's some nice sort of because Goldfinger knows that Bond has been searching his place and Bond knows that but they have to keep up these appearances and then that's quite fun um but you don't but Goldfinger's a very different character the the book is certainly tonally not as light and as jokey and as camp as the film is and I think some of the great exchanges between Connery and Gert Frobe in this film come from just the actor's chemistry and the the dialogue that they give. And I don't think that's really present in the book where Goldfinger is a bit more of a mobbish kind of villain, I think. Right. It's crazy they kept that chemistry in place when Gert was dubbed. It's insane, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, I know that Guy Hamilton told him to like speak very quickly and with very like, you know, sort of small mouth movements and... Uh, I mean, I, I I know many people who've seen the film and have sort of been blown over by the fact that it was dubbed because um, it's perfect. And it's a perfect matching of voice and um, and person as well. It's just brilliant. Cam tells me to do the same thing every time we record. <laughs> <laughs> the voice you hear in the finished product of this podcast is actually just me doing a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to hear that now. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. Um, <laughs> But, you know, going back to that laser scene it, and also the golf sequence kind of tying them together. But, you know, Guy Hamilton was kind of lucky in that he had a movie where you had Bond and the villain together a fair amount of time. Because I look at the first two Bond movies, the ones that comes before this, both Dr. No and Red Grant only get one scene really with James Bond. Hmm. Um, it feels like you look at those two movies and I, it's almost like they were like, Let's do more of that because obviously these villain sequences, whether it's the dinner in Dr. No or the train conversation with Grant and Bond, though, like the, those movies really come to life during those sequences. And in this movie, you get two really strong sequences and you get that relationship throughout where they're even just like drinking mint juleps out <laughs> on like the patio. You know, it felt like they just found constant ways to inject that energy of, a really great character actor pairing off against your star and just letting that kind of drive the movie. 
And just on that like that scene that you mentioned then with the mint juleps, I love that because Goldfinger is like teasing Bond as he's like working out what his evil scheme is. And he's so, he's just really enjoying it. He's loving that he's watching the wheels turn in Bond's head as he's putting it all together. And like, I, just, I love that. It's a really inventive and cool way of having the villain's scheme, you know, become apparent to Bond without it just being him just talking it through. Uh, it, it's a lovely scene. Uh, it's just a way of adding to Goldfinger's intimidation as well, because he feels so comfortable having Bond sat right next to him that he won't take him out. And he can just, just let him sit there and drink an alcoholic beverage because <laughs> he's got him. <laughs> well, so much of the exposition in this movie is just handled so well, where it's done through character writing or even the sequence where like <laughs> Goldfinger pulls out the map for the mobsters uh why he does that who knows because he's going to kill them all anyway uh but <laughs> it feels entirely like it's character based because you could you know you look at the glee on goldfinger's face when he's showing his maps and he's got these guys hopping all over a room i just buy that he might actually show these guys all these plans just because he kind of gets off looking really powerful and smart in front of people <laughs> he comes back afterwards and he's and bond says oh i enjoyed your presentation and then he says me too <laughs> yeah. He just wants to hear himself talk. I get it. Well, there's like a vanity to Goldfinger that's just so much fun. You get it right off the setup where he's cheating at cards, you know, with some dude in Miami. And it's like, this guy's loaded with money. He doesn't really need to be doing this. And it's just all about <laughs> he wants the power and he just wants the ability to basically be like, I win. It's like, hang on, I, I I need to hold off on my uh, world domination plan of getting all this gold. I need to go swindle this guy in a in a, in, in a hotel in Florida <laughs> for like five bucks a hand. <laughs> what? It's a it's a really bizarre actually setup for that sequence because you look at the the way they've um, put their extras into the scene. It's like ten thousand women in bikinis and then these two guys playing cards. It's very weird. <laughs> Hang on, hang on. As an aside, because we're mentioning this scene, I wrote a note down. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but we get this great opening shot of the poolside. It's like a helicopter camera work. It looks really expensive. And mm. then we zoom in and we see Felix Leiter turning up in the film. And he's <laughs> walking down past the pool and some ladies see him. And they're like, oh, check out <laughs> Felix. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like 60 year old white dude and they're like oh my god come back <laughs> what is that i feel like those two women were thinking that's not jack lord <laughs> <laughs> they're not wearing my sunglasses no um yeah he, he felix is now played by keck linder and i'm just curious i know calvin you did a ranking of the felix lighters what is your take on the kind of the leap from Felix Leiter in Dr. No to this film. <laughs> oh, bless him. I kind of love him just because he's so... I mean, this is like... I guess it was like a conscious thing of like, Jack Lord is a bit too cool maybe and we don't want anyone to be potentially cooler than Bond. I know that there was some behind the scenes stuff. Jack Lord apparently wanted a lot of money and co-star billing with Connery to come back and that obviously wasn't going to happen. So, uh... But still, recasting, you do tend to find there are two kinds of Felixes up until Jeff Wright anyway you have the kind of cooler more sort of 
you, you could see you could see Jack Lord and Connery's Bond going to a bar together as they do in Doctor No and having a good time and being friends off screen. Whereas sometimes they cast these more sort of bureaucratic Felixes um, in the suits and a bit older and a bit more curmudgeonly. Um, and and this is is one of them. I think he's okay. I think he he has enough of a a, a cheeky smile to him, a cheeky charm. Um, we spend a lot of the film with him, actually, maybe even more than any other Felix. He pops up throughout, and um, we go on for a big tangent with him at one point. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm okay with him. A lot of binocular work, a lot of hanging out at KFC work, but he's there nonetheless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where where does uh, this Felix lighter come in on your lighter scale, Cam? How did we do that scale? Was it like a one to five on blandness or something? I think so. I think so. <laughs> okay, so like Jack Lord wasn't bland at all. Like he set the bar for kind of your like he's like a one on the bland meter because he's actually really effective. This one is probably like a three. Cause I know we're gonna get far, far blander going forward, but this guy's also a noticeable step down from the Jack Lord Felix, just in feeling like kind of a cool character. So yeah, I think that's about right. Three. I think he might be intimidated by his sexual prowess. <laughs> that too. Well, I mean, uh, those two women in uh, Miami really recognize that in that sequence, apparently. <laughs> a full suit and a trilby hat at the poolside is exactly the way to dress, and they knew it. <laughs> the 60s was a weird time. <laughs> I suppose if we're, if we're talking about scenes we liked, I want to just have a shout out to the, the pre-credit sequence. Mm, I think... Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's terrific. And recently, at uh, uh, the time of the recording, a few weeks ago, we put out our The World Is Not Enough episode. And we were talking with Dr. Lisa about the opening with the chase along the uh, Thames. Uh, and I said it was probably one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And everyone was replying to that saying, Goldfinger, Goldfinger. And I, I'd forgotten. I'd, I'd genuinely forgotten about this opener. And I have to say, it's pretty terrific. Mm. Uh, I still wish we had the dog hat, though. <laughs> I don't even understand how that works. Why is there a dead dog floating through the water? What, did they say what breed? Did they say what breed of dog it was supposed to be? Because that changed things as well. It was a, a Chihuahua or bulldog or Saint Bernard, Great Great Dane. <laughs> <laughs> it's just splayed out, floating on the water. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's fantastic. And we also get what I would call, and uh, sorry, this is me blaspheming here, uh, the True Lies suit reveal. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's so mm. many iconic elements. I, what I really noted about this sequence was a couple things. Number one, we get to see real stealth Bond. You know, he's dressed in black. He's sneaking around the, you know, the sort of the premises here. Um it's something that I was actually on the lookout for because you have that real stealth bond mode going in the previous two. And I was wondering if this was the one where they kind of lost that because you get to a certain point and Sean Connery is not being stealthy. He's just kind of like wandering into the scenes being like, I'll be, I'm good. I'm good. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, diamonds are forever bond is where you really get that taken to its nth degree. But here you still see that you also have the brutality where he's like, you know, using that woman as a human shield with the guy coming at him with the, um, with the, uh, the weapon. And just the idea also, the one thing I also noted was you have him electrocuting this guy and delivering that, you know, timeless quip, the shocking, positively shocking. That is also kind of a setup for what we're going to get later with um, Oddjob and his death. So 
it's a very well constructed opening sequence. Mm-hmm. It's just hitting so many elements. It is this perfect mini adventure, and it's like I think it's like less than five minutes from like you know the start of the gun barrel to the start of the pre of the uh, title sequence itself. It's remarkable that they managed to fit so much in there, and it works so well. It's just a really nice, fun time. I know that the director talked about they wanted to just do exactly that. It was just like to set the tone of the thing and like, okay, this is what we're going for now. Just roll with it, have some fun, have some laughs, and we'll have a good time. But when you contrast that to what they did previously in From Russia With Love, which was all about intrigue, and you know, we saw the Bond imposter getting garroted by Red Grant, and it was all very mysterious and setting up all of that. I don't think there's much mystery here at all. It has hardly anything to do with the rest of the film at all but it is just an excuse for a good time and and it is that it's brilliant i i wonder where the decision came in that they thought because you're right calvin with from russia with love it was tied into the story mm. it was the the bond double being killed by red grant but this is just a completely wrapped up mini adventure before we get to that you know the music hitting us in the ear in the title sequence and mm. I, I wonder why they chose to have this contained adventure hmm yeah, you know, I don't actually know if there was any precedent for this at all. Um, Cam, with your film history, I, 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 perhaps you'll know better than me. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if this was kind of like a first of its kind or if this kind of teaser thing had been done before that was kind of uh, non-consequential to the uh, rest of the film. Nothing is popping to my mind as a precursor to this sort of thing. Mm. Um, usually they wanted those like, you know, like the five minute credit run because people didn't show up at, you know, to movies on time in those days. Like people mm. just kind of wandered in. It wasn't like the set times we have now. And so I often felt like they would have those extended credits right up top. So people didn't miss anything. Um, but in a case like this, yeah, I, I don't know what the exact reason was. And, and there was um, nothing really that seemed to lead into it. It wasn't like a trend at the time, I don't think. Hmm. It's, it's interesting how the whole scene kind of encapsulates sean connery's bond yeah mm. you've got the the brutality through to all the way through to the the sex you know he, he's he's doing some questionable things with the ladies and i think we're going to get onto another questionable thing later <laughs> but um you know he's vicious he's brutal uh but he also is commanding and that is exactly what we think of when we think about sean connery and they managed to do this in four minutes yeah crazy I'm curious. I have a question for you, Calvin. Do you view this as the like the the pinnacle of Sean Connery Bond? Oh, very definitely. Yeah, I, I mm. don't think he gets any better than this in physicality, in looking like he wants to be there, uh, which is something that becomes an issue <laughs> <laughs> later on. Uh, no, it's all guns blazing. He's just perfect here. It's it's yeah. I think it might be the best Bond performance. Connery is not my favorite James Bond actor. But I think his performance in this film is about as good as it can get. Uh, yeah. How, how how do you guys feel? Are you more sort of like performing from Rush With Love where it's a bit more serious? I'll probably save my opinion on this a bit more until we get to the knock list later in the episode, I think. Oh. I, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil anything, I, I'd, I'd say. Mm. Okay, well, I'll spoil away. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I tend to actually come down on the Dr. No Bond. Oh, wow. Because, you know... You have that right from the introduction onwards. It just feels like there's sort of that, uh, I think Scott referred to it uh, earlier, like coiled panther, like mercenary mode to Bond in that story where I'm really pulled in. You know, the killing of Dent in that movie is just Bond at his coldest. It's a different character than we're getting here where it's more of that sort of 
almost like superhero spy character that's going to continue on forwards. I kind of find myself gravitating more towards the deadly bond you get in Dr. No. I think what's very noteworthy, though, about this one is it really does feel like the Bond, they've finally figured out who he is. You have the, you know, shaken, not stirred line. You've got the Bond, James Bond. You have all of the elements of the character that are going to be, you know, used going forward. Those aren't necessarily all in place from moment one from Dr. No. Hmm. Hmm. I feel bad for like holding out now on my answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, it's a good tease. I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing it. <laughs> Keep listening, everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, the only other thing I had in terms of of likes, in terms of scenes or set pieces, was the DB5. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's arrived. The classic. It's here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, all the way from the ejector seat to the guns. It, I mean, they recently re-released a, a version of the car that had like fake guns in the lights and stuff. I can't remember how much it is. I'm sure it's hundreds of thousands of pounds. But uh, the fact that it's still an important car now just goes to show. Yeah. And I think that that version that they did, I don't think it's road legal, technically. Oh. So you can imagine, you know, you, ha- you probably have to have your own little sort of course just to uh, just to drive it around on ground. So I guess that's the people it's marketed towards. But wouldn't you just love it? Like, I would absolutely kill to have one. It's uh, it's perfect it's iconic it has some of the best gadgets even like years down the line I, you know it doesn't get as good as as, as that the fact they keep going back to it, it says it all really yeah yeah exactly i've always wondered if the tire cutters on the car were inspired by ben-hur because it feels ve- like a lot like the chariot sequence in ben-hur with uh, masala having the blades on the side of the wheels I believe it was. Um, I think I'm trying to think back to some behind the scenes stuff now. I can't remember who it was exactly, but someone, it might have been Guy Hamilton. It might have been one of the uh, writers did say that that was an inspiration. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, I've always loved it when uh, after that sequence, he's um, slashed the tires on until he's gone. He also like slashes along the entire sort of side of the thing from wheel to wheel. And she gets out of the car and, they're just, and she's like, oh, my tires. And it's like, yeah, and the body of the car has been <laughs> sliced open. Like that is a more pressing concern than a couple of flats. But OK, whatever. She handles her crash very well. Like her ability to... <laughs> <laughs> to uh f- you know uh ward off like whiplash is very strong yeah <laughs> she's not even wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> no. yeah. i have to say the uh the tilly masterson played by tanya mallet character wins the award for most wooden acting in the scene slightly after this in the forest oh yes that's yeah. a that's a strange scene right there yeah yeah. She's an interesting character. She's in the book an awful lot more. She goes like all the way through to the end to Fort Knox, I think. Um, and she's much more clearly a lesbian character in the book. And it's hinted at in the film, but in the book, she has a real crush on Pussy Galore. And that ultimately is what kind of leads to her downfall in the climax. Um, oh. But yeah, but here they um, dispatch of her uh, much sooner. It is kind of weird, actually, to have Tilly introduced... Um, and then seemingly be an active character who wants to kill Goldfinger and then be killed very quickly. Like, it is kind of a strange choice. It's the sort of thing they would not do now, I don't think. No, yeah. Uh, particularly as it doesn't really seem to give Bond, you often see that 
when ally characters are killed, it's often to give Bond some kind of motivation. To Even earlier on with her sister Jill, we see that in M's office, where Bond is very kind of pissed off, really. Um, and he wants to go out and get Goldfinger, and he's even a bit snappy with M about it. And you really get that in Connery's performance. With Tilly, I don't know if you... He has a moment of mourning her, obviously, but I don't know if he's motivated to do anything story-wise that he wouldn't have done had she st still been alive. Um, it, it is an odd character. Um, yeah. I've always felt bad for Tilly because she's so bad at getting revenge. Like, you see her shooting <laughs> you know, wildly, trying to assassinate Goldfinger, and then, you know, gets killed in the woods with Oddjob's hat, and it's like, this poor woman. Like, she's set up as someone out on a revenge mission, and she's completely incompetent. Well, actually, this is another sort of thing to Bond's, uh, you know, because she might have been good if he comes mm. up behind her and grabs her, and then that's sort of what uh, makes her raise the sniper, which triggers the uh, the uh, fence thing so that they know that she's there. So had Bond not intervened in that moment, maybe she'd have killed him, and, uh, and we'd have had a very short film. Mm. What could have been, what could have been. <laughs> but then would Jill have been killed if Bond hadn't been in the film? If we're doing, if we're going full Indiana Jones, Oof, yeah. he, he technically caught, he Bond causes Jill's death. Yeah, huh? That's a good question. Hmm. Well, presumably Goldfinger would still go through with his Fort Knox scheme, but the CIA were already kind of on to him. So yeah, yeah. The CIA, the CIA are just watching everything he does. Apparently, um, huh? I mean, also his plan doesn't make a lot of sense. But I mean, we can get into that. <laughs> um, I, th I suppose the last thing I wanted to shout out in terms of great stuff was Oddjob. Mm. Uh, yeah. Talk about the guy who set the blueprint again for the henchman. Much as Ray Grant, I think, was fantastic in From Russia With Love, he was a more, almost like a second main villain. Whereas Oddjob is definitely that henchman. Yeah, and I, I really am kind of fascinated by Oddjob. Harold Sakata is really strong in this movie, just as a presence, and I guess physically strong as well. But um, you have so many scenes where he's just kind of smiling. He does so much with so little. And yet I'm fascinated by the psychology of this character who's more than willing to lock himself in Fort Knox with an atomic bomb and to make sure this bomb goes off. Like, I would love to know the backstory. I want the prequel as to how the friendship between uh, Goldfinger and Oddjob began, because boy, is Oddjob loyal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is an extreme isn't it like even in the future you you have like sort of bond henchmen questioning like i love the bit in um octopussy where gabinda's got to go out onto the plane to tear bond off and he, he sort of questions that order he's like what i'm not going out there um but yeah no odd job is fiercely loyal and he does so much just to your point cam i think he he has no lines he has a few grunts here and there but he has such a great presence and he barely even needs to do anything and i think this series actually proves that not anyone can do that like even i don't think dave bautista is mr hinks in um specter um, even though I really like Dave Bautista, I think he's a really good actor. He didn't have that same level of character to him as Oddjob did here. Um, and there might be an awful lot of reasons for that beyond the um, just the actor. But uh, yeah, Harold Sakata as Oddjob is just phenomenal. Is he the best henchman of all time? Ooh. Ooh. Hmm. I, I like Jaws. Uh, yeah. I know, right? Jaws is the one that you always fall back on when people ask if Odd Jobs the best, because Jaws is the one, at least for especially like my generation, it's still like, oh my god, that's like the gold standard. But well, you've got Xenia too. 
Mm, I love yeah. Zenia. And Mayday yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's great ones. I, I sense a video coming on, Calvin, unless you've yeah. done it already. <laughs> In which case, shut up, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to say I would go with Xenia, but that's mostly because I'm a, a Pierce Brosnan, you know, I'm a Team Brosnan guy. Mm, sure. Mm. I think the thing is, like, once you get to characters like... Um, well, you know, Mayday and Xenia, they're trying to give them more of a psychological profile. Whereas mm-hmm. the earlier ones, you're getting more of your Jaws, your Odd Job, you're kind of your tall blonde dude in You Only Live Twice, um, several other tall blonde dudes in other movies. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like they're really trying to dig into them as characters so much as portray them as, at best, you know, charismatic action characters. Um so I find it hard to compare like a Xenia to an odd job because Xenia's given so much more to do as a character. But in terms of the kind of the um the the, the heavy, like the real kind of classic iconic heavy, it's odd job or Jaws. I think Jaws just might get the edge for me because he gets two movies. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And you've had a photo of one of those two. Also true. Yeah. Oh. I actually got to meet uh Richard Keel, so I think that one might uh reign supreme in my mind. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, when was that? Uh, it was actually at a Star Trek convention in 2014. He used to go to the Las Vegas Star Trek con every year and just have a table mm-hmm. where he would, yeah, you could get autographs, you could get photos. And the first year I saw him, I'm like, this guy wasn't in Star Trek, but this is an opportunity. So I went and did a <laughs> selfie of him uh, crushing my head in his hands. Um, I asked him questions. I'm sure he's been asked more times than you know, that he would prefer, but uh, he was very gracious, answered them all. And uh, uh, I think it was maybe the next year he was there again. And I got him to do a uh, autographed photo for my dad for his birthday, which you know, my dad has over his computer now. So very nice man, you know, while he was alive. Ah, oh, that's so lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bummer because um, uh, Famke Jensen came one year to the con as well. And I was going to do a photo op or autograph with her, but they were like very, very expensive. And I was like, okay. Also, also Femke Jansen had invented social distancing at that point. So all of her, <laughs> yeah, all of her photos were a good distance away from each other. I have to say. Yeah. I've, I've seen pictures and heard mixed things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, at the con too, you can go and look at people's photo ops because they lay them all out on a table and it was a very uncomfortable series of photo ops. So I felt fairly justified in not paying what it, the $80 US or whatever it was. Oof. Well, before I move on to criticisms, potentially, is there any other scenes or moments you guys want to shout out? I, I guess I wouldn't mind giving a shout out to Pussy Galore herself on a Blackman, um, okay. who I think uh, definitely, ooh, I'm thinking of the rest of Connery's Bond girls and female co-stars, but I think she is the strongest of them all. Um, she's the first one in the chronology to keep her own voice, which is a, a nice consistency mm-hmm. of performance. Uh, incredibly well-written character, very witty. Um, I, I guess we'll get onto criticism. <laughs> That's that barn scene um, in a bit, but I, I do love her, and she's clearly an actress having a great time with the performance. Um, yeah, just another highlight, really, another great performance. If you were tracking these films coming out in the sixties, 
it must have been very fascinating to see uh, Bond coming up against Rosa Clement from Russia with Love. But this is maybe the first strong Bond ally that's a female. You know, she, she has her own uh, personality, her own character arc throughout the film. I, I don't think there really is anything in, in Doctor No. Ursula Andrus is, is great in that film, but um, I don't really think she has an arc to her. Hmm. Right. Um, so then seeing uh, Pussy Galore on the screen, apart from the ridiculous name and, and the scene in the barn, which we're inevitably going to get to in a minute, and I think we should talk about it. It's great to see Honor Blackman coming in. And I think at this point, she's either on Avengers or something else on British TV at this point. Can anyone correct me? Yeah, it was Avengers. Uh... Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. And she's you know known for using her judo in that as well. So she's coming on the screen. You know she's a force to be reckoned with. And she's going you know beat for beat with Bond. Hmm beating him up for and, and having him at gunpoint and having him completely flawed at certain scenes. That, that's good to see. One thing I think is really notable about this character too, is that the previous, you know, Bond women have been kind of ingenues. They've been young. They've often been portrayed as very naive. And that's something that Pussy Galore is not at all. Like this is someone who's been around for a while. Like Honor Blackman was a little older than some of the other actresses they cast as Bond uh, leading ladies. And she carries that into the movie. Like there's a maturity to this character and she has a little bit of a seen it all kind of vibe. And I think that is very effective and puts her more on equal footing with bond, especially when they are verbally sparring back and forth. Mm. Well, I think that probably leads us over into criticisms and I think I'll just pivot on the pussy galore subject. Yeah. So me and Cam seem to have a string of problematic films recently that we've been tackling. Hmm. This one is problematic for different reasons than what we've been talking about. But, you know, that whole scene in the barn is very much a relic of the early 60s. Mm. Uh, I mean, for those who don't know, I'm surprised if you haven't seen this film by now, but, you know, Bond basically accosts Pussy Galore at this point and forces himself on her uh, in a very uncomfortable way. Yeah, and it's like the camera really lingers on him kind of like forcing himself downwards on top of her. And you're like, Oh, this is awful. This is really uncomfortable. It's, it's not a moment that's unusual in films either, or even, you know, like I was a literature major in, uh, you know, back when I was in university and there's a lot of books um, that repeat this sort of trope of women who are, you know, portrayed as icy or aloof. And the key is the man has to force himself on her to kind of get her to open up and fall in love or something. It's very common. And it's continuing here. You even see it like a decade later in the first Rocky movie where Adrian is very shy and withdrawn. And it's like basically Rocky having to kind of, it's not as um, extreme as here, but it is kind of that uncomfortable, I'm kind of forcing myself on you kind of moment. And then, you know, the next thing you know, they're in love. Mm -hmm. So very much a trope of the time, aged like soggy bread. <laughs> Particularly around, like, there are so many conversations now about consent, and she's very clearly saying no. She's saying that she's not interested in all these kinds of things, and it is just, it is played as this magical moment. Like, he plants lips on her, and then she just can't resist it, and she turns and and that's it because throughout the film it's sort of hinted that she's a lesbian in the book it's very overt in the film i guess they couldn't be so overt at the time but it's certainly hinted and plot wise it's the only how they've written it it's the only effective thing that bond does to change the course of events because they sell us on the fact that he has to do this because he has to 
appeal to Pussy Galore to be on his side. And without that, she wouldn't have contacted Washington. It wouldn't have gotten to Felix. They wouldn't have had the whole ruse prepared for Goldfinger when they get to Fort Knox. It's really the only thing that Bond does in the second half of the film that affects the plot. And I've heard some people sort of defend the moment as 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 as, um, as a result of that. And I think, yes, the plot is dependent on it because they wrote it that way. <laughs> they could mm. have written it another way where he didn't force himself on her. Um, and I think it's just especially funny. Like I never really picked up on this before, but just watching this time, even like Goldfinger shortly before that scene is sort of putting his own moves on Pussy Galore and he's like stroking her mm -hmm. hand at one point and she kind of pulls it away and makes a point of it. And even he's like, oh, okay, you know, that that's that then. And even he sort of knows that no means no. But uh, yeah, Bond forcing himself on Pussy Galore is just, yeah, it, it's just uncomfortable. It's of its time, but it's just a, it's just a bit icky watching it today a, a question to you both um as you've both read the book does this scene feature or something close to it at all uh not to my memory um i can't actually remember much of the final third of the book is quite this is after bond has offered to be goldfinger's secretary and i <laughs> lost interest quite frankly <laughs> um because Tilly's around. I can't remember exactly how. He does end up with Pussy Galore at the end anyway. Um, it's still a romantic uh, moment between them to finish the story. But uh, I don't think this barn scene isn't there verbatim, I don't think. I can't remember. Again, I was a teenager. It was like over 20 years ago that I read the book. So, yeah. Uh, I, I somehow doubt, just knowing Fleming, I mean, I, I've read, I haven't read all of his novels, but I've read a chunk of them now. And I just have a hard time picturing him having a sequence where they're like doing judo in a barn. <laughs> it seems kind of unlike him. I was doing some reading after watching the film uh, about this topic. And there's an article that I'll get Cam to link in the show notes. And it talks about this scene and other problematic scenes in cinema, especially around mm. this time. And it comes up with the term value dissonance. Hmm. And basically what that means is if we look at just uh, just look at London as an example, it's such a multicultural uh, area in, in England that you can go from one town or one road to another and you have a different set of values from one nationality to another or however you want to look at it. Now, if you so that's two streets in one set of time, if you then do that to two different countries like the UK and the US, there's going to be different values. There's different legal systems. You know, you can carry guns in America. You can't carry guns here in the UK. Um, and that's just now. So if you then stretch that out to the 60s to now, there's obviously going to be a values dissonance. And that's that's what the, the, the article's talking about. And I can, I can definitely use that as a way of looking at this film because it's just of its time. It doesn't forgive what they did, but I don't want to sit here and, and just bash it as much either and i think that's something i've been guilty of recently with reviewing some other films well when we talked about one of our dinosaurs is missing um i i said like when you have problematic you know dated material like this it's does it overwhelm the film versus is it a element of the film you kind of have to acknowledge and you can move on from I, this is a case where you have these moments that are a little uncomfortable but i feel like they don't overwhelm the film the one thing i will say though is this movie has kind of a weird relationship with bond and women in this movie that I don't think was the case in the previous two. Like, I'm not going to go, you know, I'm not going to die on the hill of the previous two or progressive studies in, you know, modern <laughs> courtship. But um, Bond 
multiple points in this movie is like interrogating women too. Like, have you slept with Goldfinger? You know, what do you do for Goldfinger? Is it sexual? Like, he doesn't seem to do that in the other ones. It felt kind of weird. Also, you know, you have the scene obviously with Dink at the start of the movie with the famous, you know, man talk and the slap on the butt, which, you know, I remember just like, I remember when we watched this as, you know, a family back in the day, the whole family just like laugh at the sheer absurdity of that moment. It seemed ridiculous and dated even when we were watching it in the, uh, probably the 80s or 90s. Um, So yeah, it's just like this movie has kind of a, I think the relationships between Bond and women is a little weirder in this movie than maybe even some of the ones going forward. When you get to the next one, you've got like Fiona Volpe basically calling Bond out on the type of behavior he puts on pussy galore here where you know he sleeps with her or i guess really sexually assaults her and then she completely you know has a the, the angels sing and she decides to jump over to the good guy's side hmm. I, I think a big part of that is because two of the women that he's sort of entangled with through so much of this are lesbians and they're not <laughs> interested in him really um i think from russia with love obviously it's hinted that Rosa Klebs a lesbian as well, but Bond has no desire to make moves on her at any point during the film. Whereas most of the other female characters in the other couple of films, they do just tend to sort of, you get the sense that they do kind of want him. Even like Miss Tarot in uh, Doctor No, you get the sense that she is kind of enjoying this a little bit. Um, whereas here he is just very much like forcing himself on um pussy galore but i agree with um scott what you said like i don't it doesn't detract from my enjoyment of the film and you know to criticize it is to not sort of imply that it should be removed from the film and it should be censored forever and all that kind of thing absolutely not um and i will say just like i did watch this film with a couple of friends who had never seen it before um a friend of mine from work and her boyfriend and Mm. i'd sort of you know, we put this on and I, because they wanted to watch a quintessential 60s Bond film. I was like, okay, Goldfinger. And I did kind of warn them about the scene. It's like, okay, there is this kind of dodgy scene, but, you know. And after it played, they both kind of turned to me and said, what, is that it? And I was like, oh, did, did it not bother you that much? And they were like, well, we thought it would be worse, I guess. So I don't know if it is like sort of presented in this very soft way with the music. It's supposed to be this romantic thing. Um, it, it, it is still him forcing himself on her, but I, yeah, maybe it plays okay for, yeah, I don't know, some first time viewers who are maybe braced for it. I, I don't know, but yeah, interesting. The friends that you had, uh, watched the film, Calvin, mm. had they seen many other Bond films before? Um, a few more. They'd seen all the Daniel Craig ones, um, a couple of Pierce Brosnan's, and I think that was about it really they'd never seen a 60s one they'd never seen a connery one so that's why we watched this one right i i could i almost could understand their reaction in that sense because a lot of people would give the 60s and and earlier films and sean connery bonds a sort of a bad name for being um misogynistic so i mean this is a bad scene and we've spoken about it but i think people might expect worse because the reputation he gets is his bond is a massive misogynist Mm. Mm. yeah uh but uh, yeah, I, I mean, as I say, it's quite an uncomfortable scene to rewatch now. Um, but like Cam said, it, it doesn't detract from the film. Mm. Mm. Um, apart from that scene then, guys, is there any other things that sort of you bumped on or you think could be improved about the film? <laughs> Why do we need to spend 10 minutes watching that car being crushed? Damn it. Like, <laughs> that whole tangent is just really, uh, yeah, that's that's something else. Uh, obvious, it's, it's the one guy in 
Goldfinger's briefing, who does not want to get in on his scheme immediately, and so he leaves. But then we have this protracted sequence where Bond puts, like, the homing thing in the guy's pocket, and then we're following Felix following the guy, and it ends with, with the car being crushed, and they lose the signal, and it's just really... Yeah, I mean, I, I I know something. I think Harry Saltzman had got like that was like the first scene for the film that was shot. That car being crushed, and I don't know if at the time it was just this sort of fascinating thing that not that many people, you know, you can't go on YouTube, for instance, and watch cars being crushed in um, in scrapyards like you can now. So maybe it was just interesting for to people. Maybe this wasn't something that had ever been put on film before, but it's just such a bizarre tangent um, and really kills the story dead for a. For a couple of minutes. Um, that's my only other low light. I don't know how you guys feel about that scene. Well, I feel like that's there because they crushed a real car. They were like, if we're crushing a real car, <laughs> we are going to show every single second of crushing that car on screen. <laughs> if it's not something that happened in the books, which it sounds like it wasn't. No, I don't think so. Then I have to try and come at it from like a, a, a writing standpoint. So the the reason they do it is so Bond can get the message out to Felix, mm. right? Uh, that that seems a logical reason, right? Yeah, yeah. But then logically, that Goldfinger's going to this massive extent of sending this guy out with his gold to bring him back with his gold and just crushing him, and as you say, spending ten minutes doing absolutely nothing. He could just shoot the guy in the head. Yep. <laughs> like, what are we doing? And and you could just get, you know, Pussy Galore could could you you could just wrap it up at the end and say, "Oh, Pussy Galore sent me a message," uh, and and that's how we knew. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just wonder if 1960s audiences were like, "Oh my God, I'm watching a car get crushed into a cube." Maybe that's why this movie was so successful. Word of mouth of you've got to see the car crushing sequence. Maybe that was what they sold this movie. There was like variant posters where it's just a picture of a cube. <laughs> that and the duck hat. <laughs> Do you think they have like um cast aside posters of the dead dog hat? Like kind of like the Revenge of the Jedi posters? <laughs> <laughs> Limited edition. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I agree with you on that one, Calvin. I think that's a weird distraction that I I think was just written in as you say, Cam, as just a way to get footage of a car being crushed. Hmm. Yeah. Probably. Uh, what What about you, Cam? Any Any outstanding lowlights? Not really. Um, to me, I guess you know, Calvin touched on it earlier. Just some of the locations in this movie aren't quite as picturesque as the other films. It is interesting that this is so much viewed as kind of the definitive Bond movie for so many. When the locations a lot of the time are a little blah. I mean, Kentucky, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> like, I've also maybe one of you can resolve this for me. I was a little confused. We have the scene where um, it's after the Geneva sequence. Bond's in the plane, and they're talking about how he's going to Baltimore. And then basically we're flying to Baltimore, and then we wind up in Kentucky. Why were we flying to Baltimore? Huh. That is a good question. <laughs> like, was there no direct flights to Kentucky in those days, maybe? Like, maybe that was the case, and I should be, you know, I should have done my research on airport situations in the, 19, in the 1960s, but it was something I was really confused by. I don't know my US geography well enough. Um, are, are those places close on the map? Uh, Baltimore, Kentucky? Uh, they're probably not that far, right? Listeners, let us know. None of us know <laughs> yeah. American geography very well, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I do just on the subject of flights. I do love at the very end of the film they're flying Bond off to uh, to meet the president. It's just like for doing for doing what exactly? Like and you know, Pussy Galore, Felix have done far more in this uh, climax, but no, you the one that gets to meet the president, James. Always find that funny. <laughs> I'm curious, I have a question for Scott and maybe for Calvin too, I don't know about your musical preferences, but does it bother you that Bond slags the Beatles? <laughs> it's really interesting you say that, Cam, because my one other point that we haven't mentioned was going to be that Beatles joke. Yeah. How how dare you? How dare you? I've, I've had Harry Palmer take the mickey out of the Beatles now in Billion Dollar Brain, and, and now Bond's doing it. Like... Leave my boys alone. <laughs> I mean, until recently, Calvin had Beatles guy hair. Like he looked yes, like Paul yeah. McCartney. <laughs> That's my lockdown look. Yeah, uh, you're rocking a... it, buddy. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, that's that's better than the Bieber comparisons I normally get. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wouldn't yeah. do that to you, buddy. No way. That's that's <laughs> that. No one wants to hear that. Um, well, this is Sean Connery's third time as Bond. I think he's probably nailed it at this stage. Uh, I think we're starting. We'll, we'll start to see the downfall potentially from here. But how do you guys think about uh, Sean's third appearance? I mean, this is the beginning of the end in some ways. Like this is the one that's obviously going to put Connery on the map as a worldwide superstar. But it's kind of also the last time I think he's really, really excited about the prospect of playing James Bond. But that excitement is very much on screen here. Mm. I completely agree. I think he's he's clearly having a good time. He's nailing it every single beat. He just conveys so perfectly. It's it's a perfect Bond performance. I think um, we obviously have uh, Gert Frobe as Goldfinger. I think again one of the quintessential villains. Really, I I, I actually would have him before any of the Blofelds. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's, yeah. Well, I mean, it, there's so many arguments back and forth about whether Goldfinger is the greatest Bond villain of all time. I mean, it's really hard to make an argument against that. We can argue about the movie about, you know, well, Bond isn't necessarily the active spy he is in some of the other movies, but Goldfinger as a villain very much reigns supreme over this movie. It's almost like a Dark Knight situation where the Joker kind of runs away with the movie. In many ways, Goldfinger is the one that runs away with this movie. So he might be the greatest Bond villain of all time, and Gert Froh really does bring it. Mm. I, I'd go so far as to say he is. I mean, I love an awful lot of Bond villains, but I just think there's so much that he does that is just so perfect. He's... I, I love, we didn't mention it, but towards the end of the thing where his uh, scheme starts to go up in flames at Fort Knox, um, as soon as he realizes that something bad is happening, he rushes off to a room and kind of flips over his coat. He has a hat ready to go to impersonate a US general. And I just love that foresight. <laughs> and he immediately locks our job in the vault. He kills Mr. Ling, his other assistant. He's just had this whole thing planned out and he's so merciless with it, all for just financial gain and corruption. But he's a, he's a villain who really enjoys his villainy which is really lovely and i don't think we have that in the previous two films where they were a bit more sort of dour and quite serious here he's like he's smiling he's making jokes he's just enjoying his evil scheme unfolding and it's it's a perfect performance again i just love it 
I just love the vanity of this villain where he does dress up in that uniform, but at the same time, he carries the solid gold gun. Like, <laughs> he needs to still kind of be Goldfinger. He can't hide that. I, I think I was disappointed when I watched this film the first time that he didn't have a gold finger. Ooh. Mm. Mm. You know, what if what if he could turn things into gold? Ooh. You know, if we talk about Dr. No was going to be a monkey at one point, <laughs> what if Goldfinger essentially was Midas? Mm. Uh, I mean, it becomes reboot. a superhero film. Well, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling a reboot's coming sooner than you guys might think <laughs> when it comes to Bond. But um, after that, we've uh, we've touched on it recently, but Honor Blackman knocks it out of the park as pussy galore. Uh, again, I, I keep saying it's like one of the best one of the best Bond allies, potentially one of the best Bond girls. She's she's ticking all the boxes here. Yeah, totally. Um, yep, she's smart, funny, resourceful. She does a judo really well. She's just, yeah, again, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we just spoke about our job, so I won't go there. Obviously, we have Bernard Lee coming back as M. I, I did like the scene where uh, <laughs> where they're having dinner with that, that other bloke, and they're talking about the, um, what are they drinking? Oh, is it a bourbon or something? Or some kind of whiskey, uh, isn't it? Or brandy? It might have been brandy. I think you're right, Calvin. And Bond just like completely out brandies him. And he seems to do that quite a lot with brandy. <laughs> I actually made a note here. This is actually, the I think, the first of the Bond know-it-all scenes with him. <laughs> there we go. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I'm just sort of saying, hey, this is the best version of that, the best version of that. It. I'll get to it on my final thoughts, but I think this film uh, does a lot of things right. Um, I suppose then final thoughts and any sort of last questions before we get to the knock list. I will start us off with, so we had the laser. Is that the worst way to die that we've had in the Bond film so far? Ooh. So far. Um, I think so. I mean, well, you had like the boiling water that Dr. No gets put into. Yeah, that's pretty that doesn't, awful. Doesn't sound too pleasant. I think you'd be alive a lot longer than being cut in half with a laser beam. Although that was a very slow laser beam. Uh huh. <laughs> um, well, going up from that angle, it'd take its time. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, okay. Well, how about like as the whole Bond franchise? Is you know what is the worst one? What is the worst potential Bond death? Hmm. Uh, for Bond himself, or or for any yeah. character. No, we're okay. going for Bond himself. So, like, eaten by sharks and... Yeah. I think this would be pretty awful because it's going so slow. I mean, I don't know what would be worse than, like, just being slowly, like, dismembered. That would be pretty, pretty awful. I'm not sure what wants to happen uh, in Casino Royale if he was allowed to keep going at his nuts. Yeah. Well, right. Le Chiffre has that line where he, like, gets the knife out just before Mr. White comes out and he says... Oh, what is it? He says something like, I'll feed you what you don't... Oh, what you mm -hmm. seem to not care about or something and it's like what is he going to cut off his like balls and put them in his mouth <laughs> i mean that'd be pretty horrible but uh yeah yeah i i think um i i, I still wouldn't want to get this laser beam man it just seems too slow we might have to track this as we go scott of figuring out if anything ever tops the laser beam sequence okay so are we sticking with all saying the laser beam is the worst right now out yeah. of what we've had so far yeah yeah okay. yeah Okay, uh, right, we'll keep an eye on that. Cause what about the Brosnans? Because we've done those so far. There is that moment in um, Tomorrow Never Dies where Elliot Carver has his torture gear and um, oh, Stamper's yeah. going to keep the vital organs alive or something before 
he dies or you, you watch your, your own heart stop beating. Like, that'd be pretty horrible, but... Uh... That'd be more instant, though. Yeah. No, I don't think so. You know? He said he could keep him alive for, like, hours and hours and hours. Like, he says, like, I broke... Was it, like, I oh, broke yeah. the record for how long I could keep someone alive? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um... I, I wouldn't really want to see what happens to that neck torture thing in, in The World Is Not Enough after a while. That could get messy. Hmm. Um, but again, I still think that laser beam is just going to take far too long. Yeah. And you get to see everything too. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, this, this has gone to a pretty dark place, guys. So uh, thank you for indulging me in <laughs> <Yeah>. this. <laughs> Avoiding laser beams. Well, what about you guys? Any sort of final thoughts or questions? Um, I want to touch on John Barry's score, which is absolutely fantastic. This was the first time he composed the theme song, too. And, I mean, talk about hitting a home run right, right off your first at-bat. I mean, the Shirley Bassey song is totally iconic. It doesn't get really bigger than that one in the Pantheon. They're still always trying to replicate the Goldfinger theme. So just the ways he works that song, even into his score, I think is hugely effective. I love all of the music playing when they are gassing the soldiers leading into the Fort Knox attack. This uh, this is pretty fantastic John Barry work. Yeah, I, I agree. The music, particularly during the torture sequence as well, there's this suspenseful sort of build-up is really good. I'm at, at times it does get a little brassy for me. <laughs> like there are moments where I just find it a little bit aggressive. Um, when it's just the horns and and the like, but it's uh, it is a beautiful. Yeah, wonderful score. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I see what you mean about that. But I, I agree, Cam. I think it's a, a, a fantastic score. Especially the first one that's jumped out at me that actually uses the theme song in the score. Like, subtly weaves it in. Hmm. Yeah. And it also actually uses the, the, the classic Bond theme when Bond's actually doing something cool. We have the scene right off the bat where he's doing, like, stealth tactics and he takes a guy out and the music kicks in. And previously, a lot of the time, it was like scenes of Bond walking across hotel lobbies, which I love. But this we get to see it more as like punctuation on Bond being like an action hero. Uh, what about you, Calvin? Any any final thoughts? Um, no, other than I guess all, all what we've covered really, and even having this conversation has been really uh, helpful for me to... Uh, build my own conclusions on Goldfinger. I think it's interesting that we all sort of started this coming to it as like thinking that we're going to be the hot take ones <laughs> and like the real Goldfinger detractors. But every time I come to it, it's it's always just such a delight, even though its faults are there and you can nitpick and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. It, it is just, it's, it's just a great bit of fun. It's perfect sort of escapist entertainment, really. Well, I, I think that's going to take us over to the question, Cam, if you're happy. Yeah. Um, actually, I just want to make one final note that I had. Um, I think it would be a crime to not mention um, Pussy Galore has the greatest line of dialogue in the history of film when she says, Pussy Galore to Champagne Leader, commence Rockabye Baby. <laughs> that was my outro. Thanks, Cam. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, actually, it wasn't. So I've actually got another one lined up. Um, we have reached the conclusion. And the question is, does Goldfinger make the knock list? Calvin, you are our guest. The question goes to you first. Yes or no? Absolutely yes. Definitely. Uh, why is that? Uh, I mean, I don't think you could get a more quintessential 60s escapist entertainment fun Bond spy adventure. It's ju It just nails all of those 
elements if you want to sort of talk about a Bond film as a cocktail. It has all of those perfect, uh, perfect things. Um, it, it, it comes together really nicely and you can overlook some of its more egregious faults because it is just that much of a good time. Um, yeah, it's the template for so much that came afterwards. I think it. I think it's important from a film history perspective for people to look at this. I don't think it's just a good Bond film, but I think it's just a great sort of uh, pop culture icon and an explanation of so much that came after it. A bit of a trendsetter, really. Cam, what do you think? Yeah, it's a yes for me. I think the thing is, when we look at the Conneries, we inducted both Dr. No and From Russia with Love. Those are much more gritty espionage thrillers, um, which the Bond franchise, that's not really what it is. Whereas I feel like this is kind of the pinnacle of the Sean Connery superhero kind of blockbuster James Bond movies. And it has all the elements. We've talked about the villains and, you know, the, the Bond girls and the set pieces. All of it's working together as, you know, I said right up top. It has that Raiders of the Lost Ark-like feel. It's like the magic is working, all the elements are in place, and we get just a supremely satisfying adventure film that, I mean, there's a reason people still watch this movie over and over and over. I mean, casual fans, like not people who obsess over Bond like we do. We watch the worst Bond movie over and over again, but I think (laughs) a lot of people will sit and watch Goldfinger even if they don't watch a lot of the other Bond films. So I think it's a very important movie culturally, and I think it lives up to that importance in culture well i think that means my vote is completely useless but uh, i'm sure you want to hear it anyway so it's also a yes for me unsurprisingly i'll keep it short i've said this on another podcast before i'm not sure what the discussion was about but the discussion in hand was the film we were talking about transcended the genre it was in and just became a great film overall in the, in the history of cinema. And Goldfinger does the same thing for me. Not only is it a great Bond film, like From Russia With Love or Doctor No or Goldeneye, it's just a great film. You could put anyone in front of it and I think they would find something to enjoy. Mm, yeah. So three yeses means Goldfinger is joining Doctor No, From Russia With Love and Goldeneye on the knock list. I think it's in good company there. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there you have it, folks. Goldfinger is officially on the knock list and the dossier is closed and filed as classified. But before we talk about the film we're tackling next week, we have a quick message from the guys at the Keeping Up With The Cardassians Star Trek podcast. Cam, roll the clip. I'm Rob. I'm Nick. And I'm Joe. I love it. I think it's kind of meh. And I've never seen it. We're Keeping Up With The Cardassians. A podcast covering seven seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But that's not it. We go down the wormhole of pop culture, life, and Garrick. New episodes every Monday. On your favorite podcasting platforms. You can also interact with the show on Twitter at CardassiansPod. And just like the Ferengi, we can't wait to stroke your lobes. So that's Keeping Up With The Cardassians. You can find it on Habitat Ring C, uh, Deep Space Nine, just outside the Bajoran wormhole, or you can search for it on any podcast app. Now, Calvin, Mm. thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute thrill having you on. Oh, no, it's been really lovely. Like, again, thank you so, so much for um, for inviting me on and uh, to talk about such a lovely film as well. This has been a really lovely discussion. And uh, it just, I mean, you can never talk about Bond enough. I feel like I'm coming away from this with some sort of new bits of knowledge and observations. So it's been a, it's been a great conversation, selfishly for me personally. So thank you for that. 
Well, yeah, it's for me, as I mentioned at the top, it's been a bit of a highlight as well. It's someone I've watched on YouTube for years. It's nice to actually have a conversation with you about Bond, something that we're all quite passionate about. Uh, I've also promised you now we're going to have you back for a uh, Hitchcock film down the line as well. Oh, I'd love that. Yes, I'm going to hold you to that. Oh, absolutely. I, I think we've got some more lined up, Cam, don't we? Oh, yeah, we got lots. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got your pick there, Calvin. Um, <laughs> right. Now, for those who, again, don't know, where can people find more from you, Calvin? Uh, primarily on YouTube, really. If you just search uh, Calvin Dyson, you should find me on there. That's uh, Calvin spelt like Calvin Klein and Dyson spelt like the vacuum cleaner. So, uh, yeah, search for that and you'll uh, find me on YouTube. And there will be links, of course, in the show notes as well. Mm, thank you. Absolutely. And, and you're always around on Twitter as well. So you can I find am him indeed. On there. Yes, yes. Perfect. So, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, we're leaping from 1964 up to 2013. We're going to take on Ben Affleck's Oscar-winning Argo. Ooh, this is a Oscar-winning film. Is it one of our first Oscar-winning films? I don't know. Goldfinger won an Oscar for sound effects editing. Does that count? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, fantastic. Well, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Argo and join us next week. Now, of course, Goldfinger made the knock list and you can find out more from the knock list at letterbox.com slash spyhards. And don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, man has climbed Mount Everest Gone to the bottom of the ocean, he's fired rockets at the moon, split the atom, achieved miracles in every field of human endeavour. Except crime. Oh, you're still here? Well, I guess you want to hear about our exciting James Bond book giveaway. Cam, tell them what they can win. They can win James Bond, 50 Years of Movie Posters from DK Publishing. Now, this is a hell of a book. I've got I've got a copy myself and then a copy to give away. It's not in print anymore, and it is a fantastic overview of 50 Years of Fantastic Bond Posters. And also some weird ones. There's some really weird ones in there. Oh, yeah, it's an absolute gem, and I think a must-have for any Bond book collection. So to win this book, firstly, there's a tweet over on our Twitter. You can find us at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, and it basically asks you to do the following things. Like the tweet, retweet the tweet, and comment on the tweet with three people you think would love to hear this episode. But because you've tuned in to the end, you have a bonus chance to win. All you have to do is send us a DM to our SpyHards account on Twitter, just saying the code phrase, Goldfinger. That gets you double the entry. So when we announce the winners, you know you have double the chance. And you know Goldfinger likes a bet, and I'm betting you might be the winner. So just to reiterate, there's a tweet, like, retweet, and make a comment on the tweet, and then send us a DM with the code phrase Goldfinger. That'll get you double the chance to win this fantastic book that's no longer in print, and I'll send it to you. Signed, sealed, delivered from Spyhards with Love. And this book is more valuable. Then gold. <laughs> <laughs>